who we understand ourselves to be in the midst of your presence. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So, 2 Samuel. Oh, I love this. My iPad just totally stopped working. I know. Uh oh, that's right. People know. No notes for Mark. Woo, you don't know what you're going to get. There we go. Okay, it comes up. This is why you should probably print it all off, right? 2 Samuel. Um, why? Why would we go through 1 and 2 Samuel? It's a narrative, historical narrative in the, in the Old Testament. It's about kings. It's about ancient Israel. What does that have to do with us today? Well, Scripture, God's Word, every word in this book is meant by God for us as His people to point ourselves to Him. And so, yeah, we may not have kings, we, we may not be going out to war and fighting and swords and having all this drama that we see in uh, these types of drama, this type of drama as we see in these, in, these, uh, in these two books. But ultimately, God has given these words to point us to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ, in the end, to, spoiler alert, is the true anointed King of God's people. And so we go through a historical narrative, even when you go, what in the world does this have to do for us today? That's a lot of weird names, and so there's a lot of fighting and infighting. What does that have to do with us? has everything to do with us as God's people, because God wants to use it to point us to Him, to understand Him better, so that we might understand ourselves better. So a little bit of history to be reminded of. Uh, 1 Samuel is basically the story of how Israel goes from judges leading the people to wanting a king, rejecting God as their king, and wanting a human king set over them. God gives them Saul exactly what they wanted, the most handsome, the tallest, the one who obviously looks like a king, put him in, in the position as king, and he utterly fails because eventually he fears his people more than he fears God, and so he directly disobeys and purposely disobeys God and God's commands for his own sake and for his own popularity, if you want to say that, with the people. And then when he gets caught, he blames the people. He doesn't put it on himself as king. And so God rejects him as king and anoints David. David's a young man. And over the next few decades, he's working for Saul. He's in Saul's army. He's a commander in, God, in Saul's army because Saul is still king even though God has rejected him as king. But David knows eventually God's going to bring him into the throne. He refuses, he refuses to forcibly take the throne over Saul even though Saul continually tries to take his life, David's life. David refuses to put a hand on the anointed king of God because God's going to deal with Saul the way God wants it dealt with. David's not going to take his own interest at heart. He's waiting for God to move. And eventually Saul and his sons, some of his sons, die in battle. And you would think David would jump right at the chance. Now he's going to be king over all of Israel. But he, 
does it. He says to God, what should I do next? And God says, go to Hebron, which is, if you want lack of a better term, a capital or a big important city in Judah, in the area of Judah, and they make him king of Judah. And then Abner, who's the commander of Saul's army, takes one of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and puts him on the throne of Israel. So now you've got two competing thrones. And they fight, and they fight, and they fight. Long battle. And so we begin today, and battle, I'm talking like war, over seven years. And we begin this week where we left off last week, where the house of David was growing stronger and stronger. In the seven years that David was king over Judah, he had six children, strengthening his position, the position of his house, and his lineage as king. So he's got a smaller area. It's not all of Israel, but he continues to grow stronger, probably not just in the number of people who were following him, but ultimately in the fact that now he's got a lineage. Compared to Saul, where his sons are dead, he is dead. All that's left is Ishbosheth, and that's a mess. So Saul's house was growing weaker and re- weaker. And so while David was having babies, Ishbosheth was having to fight for his position as king of Israel. Not against David, but against those in his own royal court. Abner who's now the commander of his army, like he was the commander of his father Saul's army. Abner is making himself strong in a house that was slowly dying. And how was he doing this? Well, with making Ishbosheth king by his own power, because Abner is the one who put him on the throne, if that wasn't enough, it seems that he was now working in his own way to usurp and seize the throne of Israel for himself. Ishbosheth makes the accusation that Abner had gone into one of his father's concubines, Saul's concubines. Now, we don't have concubines here. We don't have harems in the West. And so we kind of go, yeah, I like that. Like, no, no, we don't. No. So what in the world is a concubine? What is the importance of it? Well, a concubine was a woman who resides in the king's household She was not a wife, but is socially and sexually subservient to the king. Parents, you're welcome. We're not going to go any deeper than that. It's a messed up system. That's that's what I said. There's a reason we don't have that in the West, because it's wrong. And yet in the ancient times, to take one of the king's concubines for yourself amounts to an attempt to claim the throne for yourself. And we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 16, when David's son Absalom takes the throne. He forcibly takes the throne, kicks David out, and David's fleeing from Absalom. Absalom comes in, and he puts himself on the throne. And the advice is given to him from one of his advisors, go into your father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel, And in doing that, they will know you are king. And they will know that you have become a stench to David. It's a way of proclaiming. He actually puts a tent up on a big building in front of everybody. So they all know who's the man in charge. That's 
the importance of the concubine to the king. Again, not to today, <laughs> to the king. We've got to think of ancient culture. So in other words, if Abner truly did commit such an act with the concubine of Saul, he would be working to subvert and weaken the authority of Ishbosheth as king of Israel and placing himself on the throne. Now, here's the interesting thing. We are told if Abner actually does this, and Abner doesn't deny, nor does he admit to committing the act. So when you look at it, it says right in verse 6, right at the end, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. How was he doing that? The inference is he went into one of Saul's concubines. But he denies it, neither denies it nor admits it. But it is very clear that Ishbosheth was seeing that Abner was growing stronger, and so he felt the need to confront him, which makes sense. You're trying to subvert my authority, kick me off the throne, and make yourself king. Abner was seemingly positioning himself to take the throne for himself, and then when he was confronted, and this is interesting, he has a tantrum. It's like a, a child. You get caught in a sin. And then they fight it. No, no. And then they dig more and more and more. They don't admit it, but they don't deny it either. There's, uh, how, how dare you even accuse me of that? Why, why would you say that? Do you not trust me? This is, this is basically what Abner is saying to Ishbosheth. This is, is this really how you treat me? Do you know how much good I've done for you and your father's household? And now you charge me with something that has to do with a woman? He's not denying it, but he's not admitting it. It's the classic victimhood card of someone caught doing something wrong. Abner goes, I'm not, I'm not in the wrong. You're in the wrong. How dare you accuse me of such a thing? Abner's reaction betrays where his true loyalties lie. And just like Saul, they lie with himself. His loyalty is him. He is all about him. He cares little about who is the rightful and anointed king of Israel, which is made even more apparent with his concluding words. So this is what he says in verses 9 and 10. God do so to Abner and, and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. Dan, and, and Dan to Beersheba is the, is the um, limits of, the, of what was promised to Israel. So basically the whole territory, all of Israel, not just Judah, all of it. Now this is an amazing confession. Because Abner's own words convict him of treason, not only against David, the rightful true king of Israel, but against the Lord himself. He makes a vow. He makes an oath before the Lord, the Lord do to me also. He makes this oath to accomplish what the Lord has already vowed himself. He then admits that he had known the whole time that it was the Lord who first vowed to place David on the throne of Israel. And I think that's a key verse in this section. Abner was purposely and actively working against the will and oath of God, which is a very 
dangerous place to be. It seems that Abner's hope was to take the throne for himself, but then when that plan fails, because he gets accused of treason, when that plan fails, he decides then to move to the quote-unquote winning side of David, abandoning the man that he placed on the throne of Israel in direct violation of the known will of God. Do you see the the difference between Abner and David. David says, God, what do you want? Abner says, I don't care what God wants. I want what I want. When it fails, and David tries things on his own and it fails, he said, this is not what God wanted. When it fails for Abner, he says, well, well, that's not going to work. I better go to the winning side. I better do what God wants. His heart's not in it, though. But to say that Abner's actions are going to eventually catch up to him is actually a huge understatement. Because even in the midst of this soap opera-like kind of actions that he is giving, God is still at work. He is still moving to make David king just as he had vowed. So there are two implications that I see for us in this text today. The first... Abner's actions and his reactions are evidence of a deeper issue, namely the sin of idolatry. Second, the purposeful rejection of the truth of God has major consequences. So, first, Abner's actions and reactions point to a deeper issue in his life, and that is the sin of idolatry. Idolatry is the giving of of glory, honor, and worship to something or someone other than God, or more than God. In other words, it is the placing of someone or something above the rule and reign of God in our hearts and in our minds. We see this in the history of Israel. Just look at Exodus, when the Israelites create and worship a golden calf. And they're literally standing at the foot of the mountain that God is literally on. Thunder, lightning, clouds. Moses is up there talking and they create an idol and they worship it. We see this in the Pharisees and Sadducees in the New Testament when they place their own law above the law of God. And we see this in Abner who saw the throne and personal power as more precious than obedience to the will of God. And we see this when sports and money and family, kids, comfort, or even leisure, take your pick, us, myself, take precedence in our lives over and above love and obedience to God. I can't, can't remember who it was. Um, C.S. Lewis? I'm getting off my notes, so pray for me. It was C.S. Lewis who said, we're just idol makers. Our hearts are idol makers. Our natural tendency as human beings is to create an idol above and beyond God, and we're really good at it. Even as Christians, we fall prey to that, that trap to place things, sports, 
money, comfort, above and beyond our love of God. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are, in a sense, we're all slaves. We're slaves to something. We're either slaves to sin, idolatry, or we're slaves to obedience to God. One leads to eternal death. The other leads to righteousness and eternal life. All of us in this room, all of us, are either slaves to our own sinful, disobedient, and God-dishonoring passions, because that's what they are. Let's call it what it is. I'm not a candy coater. We're either obedient to the dishonoring passions of our heart and our life and our mind, or we're slaves to the heart of God-honoring obedience. Now, don't hear in that legalism, as in, like, if I just do what God wants, then he's going to be happy with me. The problem with that is we can never do what God wants perfectly like he demands. We cannot truly obey God until he changes and saves us. Because otherwise, then we're just trying to be as good of people as possible. Because if, if I get up into heaven and, and I'm just, I've got more good than bad, then God's going to be happy. And what God's word says is you could have a billion good deeds and you have one bad deed and it's not enough to get you into heaven. So to think legalism or moralism, if I'm just a good person or if I just do a better, more right than bad, thinking there's this scale, there is no scale. So the only way for us to truly be obedient to God and striving to be obedient to God is for him to change us and to save us from our sin. In other words, to change our hearts so that we love him more than we love sin. And when sin starts to, even as believers, even as Christians, it starts to seep up, right? And, and we fall prey to the lie of sin that this is better than what God has for us. Even in that sin, God is at work within our hearts and he's reminding us and telling us, this is not what I have planned for you. Repent, turn back to me. So when we say we're slaves to sin or we're slaves to God, that is what we mean by that. In the old days, they would use the word, and I love this word, affections. You ever heard of that? The affections to describe this kind of slavery. Where do my affections lie? Because what the affections are, your desires your love. Because where my desires and my love lie reveals who is truly my master. Am I a master to sin or am I a master to the Lord? And again, we're, we're all slaves to the one that we obey. Paul says that in Romans 6. Abner was a slave to his own selfish ambition and power. By contrast, David has patiently waited for the Lord to give him the throne that he was promised. Now, David's not standing back saying, boy, I sure hope this works out. David goes, no, that's going to work out. I don't need to worry about it. I just need to be obedient to the Lord. Now, he screws up later because <laughs> he ain't perfect. God is a covenant-keeping God, and he is always faithful to what he promises. And his promise is, is to place David on the throne of a kingdom, that promise 
points us to the same promise given to and through Jesus Christ. See what I'm saying? If David is the true anointed king in 2 Samuel, Christ is the only king. David's life, as imperfect as it is, points us to the true anointed king, Jesus Christ. So the the father promised not only to sit Christ on the throne over the kingdom of heaven, but that he will reign forever. No one will displace Christ from his rightful place. So are you a Christian? Are you a, a believer? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Does Christ rule on the throne of your heart, if you want to put it that way? Then examine yourself. And should you have find any part of, of your life where your affections lie somewhere other than Christ, then repent, turn from your sin, bow at the feet of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and be reminded you are a child of God. Nothing will remove you from his love. Find your hope, find your love, find your confidence in him, not in you, not in the things of this world. Your sin does not remove you from his household. It does not remove us as children. We are adopted, it is finalized, nothing can remove us from his family. We praise God for that. But it does, not, but it does affect your relationship with him when we sin. When we fall prey to idolatry in our own life. It is a revelation to us something has to change. I have never been shy. My idol is food. Love it. Love it. The bad thing about your idols, you can't get rid of it or you die. And so how do I fight gluttony in my own life? My gluttony in my life is my idol, and it is constantly calling me. But it also is a reminder that God goes, yeah, that's calling you. You know, you know that's not going to satisfy. You know that cannot give you what it says it's going to give you. But I can. And I praise God for his patience with me. Patience. His patiently loving and caring and disciplining me. Reminding me, you're my son, and I'm not going to continue to let you fall from grace. Okay, so could be even more. I got plenty of time here, so we're not going anywhere, right? We got a wedding afterwards. You guys can't go nowhere. So I'm going to be a little bit transparent for you, okay? Um, I, in my family, how many of you guys know what gout is? This is probably too, is this too much information? I don't really care. Hey, gout, gout is the rich man's disease. The kings used to have it. You eat lots of red meat, lots of sweets, gluttony, okay, little exercise. Um, okay, so it runs in my family. I don't know if I have it, but periodically throughout the last number of years, something's come up, and it's like, okay, you know, it, it, it goes into your foot, so it, it's so painful to walk. If you've ever had it, you're feeling my pain, right? I know a couple of you have. You're crying with me, right? It's super painful just to put on a shoe. Hurts. So exercise has not been an issue for me, but sweets and red meats have. In fact, red meats still are. So five weeks ago, my foot started to hurt, and it hurt, and it hurt. And usually it clears up within a few days. 
I am still dealing with it five weeks from now. And I, I understand it's my body reacting, but as a Christian, I also see this as God's discipline in my life, saying, Mark, I have given you so many options and so many chances for you to change your life. So now I'm going to put it, put your life in such a place that you have no place but to kill the idol in your life. Because if you continue to bow down to this, you're never going to walk me in my way. That's how I see it. Maybe that's an extreme. But in my mind, that's how I see that. And through this whole thing, you could talk to my, my wife and my kids. Yesterday was the first time in five weeks I actually got something done around the house. It wasn't enough for me. I wanted to do more. She's like, shut up. You haven't done nothing for five weeks. I'm just glad you got off your butt. Because it hurts. My foot was swollen. It was so painful. And I never, it was frustrating. Um, I prayed a lot about it. I had friends pray over me over it. But I never lost my faith because in the midst of that pain, I saw God saying, you are my son. I love you. Change and get rid of that idol because it's going to do nothing but cause you pain for the rest of your life. Now, I'm a work in progress. But I, I'm happy to say that my son had ice cream and I longingly stared at him while he was eating it. But I never, I never touched it. Six weeks ago, that never would have been possible. Because I would have been like, I'm fine. It's a little ice cream, which it never just saves a little bit, right? Exactly. Yeah, it never does. Come on, let's admit it. Now, I, I say this because as a Christian, we have to be honest with ourselves. We're little idol factories. And the smallest thing, even good stuff like food or children or money or comfort, and so many other things can so easily make their way in to our lives. Before we know it, we're bowing down to this idol. And then God smacks us around a little bit and says, okay, fine, you're not going to walk for five weeks without pain so I can get your attention because I love you. I don't hate you. I'm not kicking you out of my family. You are here to stay, and I am here to discipline you for your good and for my glory. It's the last time I'm ever going to talk about that because I don't want to talk about it anymore. And so Abner's actions are evidence of the deeper issue of idolatry, but his purposeful rejection of the truth of God. So let's say, you're hearing this now, and you have an idol in your life. And if you're a believer, and you're purposely rejecting the truth of God, that this is an idol, and you need to get rid of it. Or you're an unbeliever. You've never given your faith over to Christ. You never, um, you're not saved from your sins. When we purposely reject the truth of God, we are Abner in that moment or maybe in every area of our life. For Abner, the purposeful rejection of the truth of God that David was a true anointed king of Israel has consequences in his life. Ultimately, it'll cost him literally his life. He was very willing to go against the Lord until it was no longer to his advantage. And then suddenly he's on the side of the true anointed king. 
Uh, perhaps you or you have talked to somebody who says, uh, I'm young, I got plenty of time. I'm not going to die anytime soon. Oh, how we foolishly. I've got time to make it right before God. Right now, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to enjoy this life. Eat, drink, and be merry. And I'll, I'll fix my relationship with God right now. The problem is, is that you don't know what tomorrow's going to hold, let alone the next hour. How many people do we know who went to bed one night expecting to wake up and never do? Are you like Abner? Are you fighting the rule and reign of the king in your mind, heart, and life? You hear the truth that I've just said to you today, which is from the word of God, that you have idols in your life and you're bowing down to them, but you don't really care because you're just having fun or, yeah, I don't really want to. See, unlike previous generations, it's no longer a social advantage to attend church or just hold to biblical truths. In fact, the more you hold to the truth of God, the more likely it is that you're going to be rejected and despised by this world. And it may be easy to act the part while attending church on a Sunday morning and then live a lifestyle of which the world approves, celebrates, or at the very least ignores the rest of the week. And like the life of Abner, this type of life reveals a deeper issue. You see, God promises in his word that the day is going to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Christ is either going to come back for the day of judgment or he's going to take you home. The question is, is where is that home? Is it in his presence forever or is it in, in hell away from his presence forever? And once that time comes, once your life is taken from you or Christ comes to judge the earth, there is no time to turn back. God promises the day will come when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And that means that everyone who ever existed in all of history, whether they love Christ or not, will have to proclaim him as the rightful anointed king of the Lord because that's who he is. And those who hate that despise him as king. And yet they will still have to proclaim him as king. On that day, there will be no chance of going to the right side. But today's not that day yet. This moment is not that moment yet. And so examine your own heart. Where do your affections lie? Or as we put it a few weeks ago, whom do you serve? Who is your king? Is it Jesus Christ? Or is it the idol in your life? Abner thought that he could usurp the throne for his own power and glory only to find out that God's promised king was going to take the throne no matter what. So we might bow down to idols, put them on the throne, and expect them to stay forever. And the reality is that the king, Jesus, is on the throne. 
and he will rule forever. As he promised David, he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says to David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That means once we're gone from this earth or once Christ comes to judge, there is no chance for all eternity to come to the right side. Christ is on the throne right now, today, just as the Lord had promised. And so you have to examine your own heart and you have to ask yourself this question. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? So, Father, I pray that those words, that that question, even as your children, Father, that it would be a question of discipline to point us back to you, to, to destroy and kill the idols in our life for your glory and to worship and praise you for your worth and your honor and your glory and your praise. And for those, Father, who are hearing these words, who do not believe you, who have not put their trust in you, as always soften their hearts to these words, God, this calling of your spirit on them to, to examine themselves. Do they bow down to the idol of self? Are they placing something above and beyond you? Father, I pray that you would cut that idol at its knees. Reveal it for the deadness that it is, the worthlessness that it is, that in the end it brings only sorrow and pain and lies. Whereas, Father, you bring joy and righteousness and goodness and peace and love beyond anything we could ever imagine, Father. The sure truth of salvation through trusting your Son be made evident to us today. And may you be glorified, Father, as we search for you. In your name, amen.